welcome to another edition of Good Questions, Real Answers. I'm Kimberly with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is Monty Judith, and he is here to answer all your questions about scripture, about concepts and things that you're learning if you're new to the Messianic faith. So we have lots of good questions for you today. Monty, welcome again. Thank you. And we'll just get jump right in. We've got some heavy-duty ones today. All right. All right. Our first one is from Christopher. And Christopher would like your insight into this. In Revelation 12:4, a dragon is described sweeping one-third of the stars to earth. Then in Daniel 12:3, he mentions the saints shining like the brightness of stars. Is Revelation 12 describing a 3D view of the tribulation? Does the sweeping of the one-third of stars mean the killing of the saints during the tribulation? Okay, so Revelation chapter 12 is a very unique piece of scripture within chapter of Revelation because what it is, it's actually giving you, are you ready for this, an astrological sign. Wow. It's actually taking the heavens and it's telling you part of the story. And the constellations that are involved are Virgo, the Virgin, and Hydra. The seven-headed monster. The, the monster. Mm -hmm. And there's di different speculations, people who get into this from the astrological standpoint and the astronomy that goes with it. Many of them have said that Regulus, which is a very, very bright star, and Regulus means like the king, comes out of Virgo, mm -hmm. and then you have Hydra coming up and approaching. And so the description of Revelation chapter 12 is almost an identical description of this well-known astrological scene that appears in the winter sky every year. Wow. So that's one of the correlations to it. Now, we know that the heavens declare the glory of God. Yes. Right now, we have a lot of Babylonian stuff that is involved with astrology, and we don't really know the ancient stories that support the heavens declare the glory of God. There are elements, people have tried to figure this out, but I'm not going to go so much into that, just simply to say, this is one place where one scripture really just kind of goes through the front door of that. Mm -hmm. So that's one thought, and really what it is, so let's go ahead and give the interpretation of that. We know that when the Messiah came forth, we know the devil, through King Herod, tried to kill the Messiah when he was a, a young boy. Right. He'd barely been born. We also know that he ultimately came to try to kill him and to kill him mm -hmm. at the crucifixion. The devil knew that if he could get rid of him, he could stop what God's plan was. Well, he didn't quite understand God's plan was, always was, that he was going to give his life for us. Mm -hmm. So that's one element. But now let's zip back over here to Daniel chapter 12, because we're talking about yes. some heavenly things, about stars shining brightly. And so now that's a completely different concept. Really what that's talking about is believers, a certain group of believers that are going to do some incredible, wonderful things at the end of the age. Oh, wow. I'm referring to the 144,000. Oh. Daniel chapter 12 specifically says there will be a time of distress upon the world, but there will be those who will shine brightly mm -hmm. and they will give insight and understanding to others when there was no understanding. Wow. And so it's referencing the ministry and the work of the 144,000. 
Wow. So Revelation chapter 7, talking about the sealing 144,000, that's what ties back to Daniel chapter 12. The sweeping away of the third of the stars, mm -hmm. well, that's the ancient story of Satan when he fell. Mm -hmm. He took a third of the angels with him. Uh -huh. That goes way back, you know, for that. But there are really two separate prophecies. The, the, the Revelation 12 is an overview of, of the devil's attempt to destroy the work of the Messiah, and he's unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. But Daniel is talking about the events associated with the Great Tribulation at the end of the age, when God is not just going to leave us believers abandoned without help, Right. He specifically is going to commission and seal 144,000 believers, 12,000 from each of the listed tribes. Yes. They're going to give insight and understanding to the other saints in the midst of the Great Tribulation because it's going to be very confusing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know what the prophecy says. They're the ones that's going to be able to explain the prophecies. They're the ones that are going to be able to lead the people and guide the people in those that escape and survive and endure yes. all the way to the end. They, they are part of God's protection system for the believers that make it through the tribulation. And it says of them, they shine brightly as stars. They are even memorialized in the wall of the New Jerusalem. The wall of the New Jerusalem is 144 cubits high. Wow. 144, most significant digit. And it says specifically that that wall is made up of different precious stones. You know what it says about the 144,000? They are precious stones making up the wall. Wow. So it's really, and by the way, that ministry, which we've not yet seen, it's on a par in God's great plan as the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow. The 12 apostles working with the Messiah mm -hmm. and the 144,000, the 12,000 for each of the tribes. They have a tremendous ministry they're going to do in the final days mm -hmm. of the end of the ages. That's amazing. And there's very specific prophecies that really speak to them. Yes, that's amazing. Uh, that they're the two scriptures that our friend referenced. He was thinking were really connected, actually a little bit connected, but they're speaking to different. Right. They're, they're really two separate prophecies, but mm -hmm. it's using some of the language of stars and the heavens and and things like that. Yeah. You know, we're talking about heavenly things. So yes. the heavens get described a couple of times. That's right. Okay. Well, let's okay. move on to Clay. Now, Clay. Part of this program is watching Kimberly discover <laughs> some of these things. Yes. Uh, so our we have a viewer named Clay. Okay. And he has sent us a question that has four parts. All right. Okay. So I believe he's new to the Messianic faith or relatively new. So he's got some questions. This is the first one. If Christians are not keeping the law of God, no, they're not following the commandments in the Torah, are they saved? Well, you're asking uh, two questions. Right. One is the question of salvation. Salvation is not by keeping commandments. Right. Therefore, failing to keep the commandments isn't the loss of salvation. Right. Salvation is by the grace of God. It's having faith in God. Yes. Now, what are commandments when it comes to salvation? Well, if you love the Lord, then you'll obey him. It's part of your walk with the Lord. The Lord is the one who raises you up. Yes. But then what do you do with that? Well, you're supposed to walk before the Lord. You're supposed to obey the Lord. So we know that you're going to be held to account if you obey or don't obey. But that's not the determinant for salvation. Mm -hmm. 
I know lots of Christian brethren love the Lord wonderfully. They don't keep any of these commandments that right. we talk about here. Why don't they? Well, one, the, first of all, they don't know what the commandments are. Right. And they don't have teachers that have taught that to them. Does God know that? Yes. Is God full of mercy? Yes. Did God give grace, total unmerited favor to save him? Yes. Do you mean that God would continue to be that merciful toward them and bring them into the kingdom even though they don't know how to obey him? Yes. I that, that the God I serve does that. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. His arm is not short that he knows how to save. So there's going to be a lot of brethren who are going to be saved and who had faith in the Messiah. And they're going to get to the kingdom and it's going to be a brand new experience for them. Yes. Oh, you mean we, we obey God's instructions? It, it, oh, that's a new concept for them. <laughs> and then there's others who are, you know, who do learn the instructions and start obeying and so forth. And let me just repeat to you, the Lord says that the kingdom is going to be vertical. There are going to be those who are great in the kingdom mm -hmm. and those who are least. And to use the Messiah's definition, he said, if anyone tells you to annul the least of these commandments, he shall be least in the kingdom. But whosoever teaches and keeps these commandments, he shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. So there's the Messiah telling you yeah. what the difference is between salvation and keeping the commandments. Yes. So that's part one. Okay. So part two of the question, are Jewish non-believers referred to as Messianics or Hebrews? No, the, the first part, the Jewish non-Jewish non Gentile believers. Okay. Gentile believers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, non-Jewish. Right. Believers. Mm -hmm. What are they referred to as? Messianics or Hebrews? I think you can do both. Okay. Uh, Hebrew means that you're a descendant of Abraham. And some of you are adopted in. It's called the doctrine of election. Mm -hmm. The Father chooses you. Mm -hmm. you. You weren't biologically born, but you were chosen by the Father, so you're adopted. It's the doctrine of election. And you're a Hebrew because, through Abraham. Mm -hmm. Now, messianic is a phrase where we say, well, we hold to the Messiah. Christians hold to Christ. Mm -hmm. Messianics hold to Messiah. They really mean the same thing. Right. It's just the language that we're using it's different. here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the same way would a person would say, well, I'm Christian. I, I say, well, I'm Messianic. It means exactly the same thing. Right. Uh, I'm just emphasizing the Hebraic aspect of Yeshua mm -hmm. instead of Jesus being the, the Mashiach instead of the Christ. Right. Okay. And the final part of the question, what is the one new man Paul speaks of, and how does this come into play as a Gentile believer? Paul's making reference there in Ephesians to something that was a concept that was in the temple at that time. The Sadduceeing and Pharisaying movements mm -hmm. had altered the temple service. They excluded Gentile believers in the God of Israel. And in fact, they built what's called a middle wall of partition mm -hmm. that prohibited a Gentile being able to enter into the court of Israel, go directly to the altar to come direct contact with the priest. That was never authorized by God. Mm -hmm. That was never in the tabernacle. God never commanded that. That was something they did. And basically what Paul is trying to illustrate here, and he makes reference to breaking down the middle wall of partition. He's saying that when you are a believer 
and you become a believer, no matter what your biological background is, you become a new creation. You become a new person. Mm-hmm. And you you are are a new person, and you're now part of the kingdom. You're part of what the Messiah is doing. Mm-hmm. And whereas the temple system was supposed to illustrate that, the temple system was supposed to show how everybody comes before the Lord and so forth to present their sacrifices. Well, it, it illustrated what the Messiah has done for us. But now that we've received the Messiah, we're new people. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul talks about that we're new creatures. And he's emphasizing, and he's sharing that with a Gentile-believing audience and saying, do not consider yourself to be second class in the kingdom. The Jews aren't above you. You're right there. You're one new man. You're right. We're all unified together, Mm -hmm. and we're all part of the faith, and we all have the same king, the same spirit, same baptism, same commandments. There's no distinction and no difference for it. Mm -hmm. That's really what Paul is trying to emphasize there in the book of Ephesians. Okay. Well, Clay, there are the answers to those four questions that you had. I hope that clears that up for you. And if you have more, send them on in and we'll try to get them on. Our next question is from Alex. Now, Alex has a question about the tribulation. His question is this. Why do so many people think that the great tribulation is seven years rather than the three and a half years of Jacob's trouble and what general events would be happening in the years just prior to the three and a half years of the tribulation? Okay, so the concept of theory, let me put it this way, the eschatology theory that there's a seven year tribulation is based on how they interpret Daniel chapter nine and the prophecy called the 70 weeks of Israel. Mm -hmm. There's a little math problem there where there's 62 and seven, that's 69. Well, what happened to the 70th week? And they think a week represents, well, a week means seven. So they think it means seven years. And they say in the middle of the week is the abomination of desolation. That's what it says. So they say, okay, well, the last seven years, that is a tribulation period. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they've got some interesting theories on how this is all supposed to work. One theory is that the first three and a half years is the Antichrist starts to come to power and he's a good guy and and everybody falls in love with him and he deceives the world. Everybody loves him and accepts him as the Antichrist. And that's what he's doing in the first three and a half years. And then suddenly you have the abomination of desolation and now you have great tribulation and now it turns out to be terrible. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the theory. The theory is based on how do you parse out Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks, and how do you come up with this seven-year thing? Mm -hmm. Now, if you go anywhere else in Scripture, and you're talking about the subject of the Great Tribulation, it's never specified as being seven years. It's always specified as being three and a half years. The famous prophecy of Daniel, a time, times, and half a time. One two and a half, you know, the time means a year. Mm -hmm. So it's three and a half years, okay? And if you go to where Yeshua talked about in Matthew 24, when he talked about the abomination of desolation, he then said, for then there will be great tribulation. And the day counts associated with the great tribulation from 1290, 1260, 1335, Mm -hmm. all of those lend themselves to a three and a half year period not a seven-year period. Okay. 
So the Great Tribulation is definitely three and a half years. Okay. So the theory is, well, there's this seven-year thing and it leads into it. Well, let's talk about what leads into the Great Tribulation. Okay. Yeshua answered that question in Matthew 24. It's called the beginning of sorrows. He said the things that precede the Great Tribulation and lead into it would be things like you'll be hearing about wars and rumors of wars. You'll be hearing about earthquakes in various places. You'll be hearing about pestilences and disease, pandemics and other things like that. And it says men will start becoming violent and the love of many will grow cold yes. and they will hate you. They will kill you and they will deliver you up to the tribulation. So it's like all of these sorrowful, not happy things are supposed to, that precedes the great tribulation. Mm -hmm. Now, is that just three and a half years? Well, of course not. Because the truth of the matter is we've had all those kinds of things for years. Decades. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm millennia mm -hmm. it says that that's the stuff that leads into the great tribulation so he wasn't specifying the first three and a half years furthermore let me just go this one other point the reason why they speculate and come up with this three and a half years to support the antichrist coming to power mm -hmm. it's completely false for what the scripture says mm -hmm. the scripture says the anti-messiah comes to power through the auspices of ten kings that's right. He rises in the midst of them. It's not because he wins over everybody else. It says specifically that he uses influence and intrigue. Mm -hmm. And seven of the kings give their power to him. He actually uproots three of them. So there's a conflict yes. in terms of how he comes to power. It's not a popularity thing. Right. So this whole business about the first three and a half years is to help promote the Antichrist. And so it's pure imagination, pure speculation, and no scriptures support it. The other scriptures actually describe a very specific scenario for how he comes to power. So that's, that's the thrust of the question. Well, that's, yes. I think a lot of people do have that question. I think there's been a lot of books and movies and things that yes. make us yes. think of yes. a lot of speculation on this but, point yes mm -hmm. and whenever you get a premise well i got to have the seven year thing and i got to make it work well your imagination goes crazy trying to substantiate it so the rule is we should always look to scripture <laughs> right lay down your expectations yes. pay attention to what the prophecy says yes indeed okay well our next question is a question about scripture and it comes from carrie and she has this question about Mark 7, 18 and 19, where Yeshua says to the disciples, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, and then in parentheses, thus purifying all foods? And so she, she wants to, she's trying to follow the commandments of eating clean, but she's wanting to understand and reconcile the, her understanding of this scripture. All right. So let's sort out what the Messiah was trying to say to begin with, because he, he said that the disciples, do you not understand something? Uh, spiritual defilement is not based on what you eat. Right. Okay. I don't care if you eat unclean. That has nothing to do with spiritual defilement. Spiritual defilement is things that corrupt your soul. Yes. that change your soul, that bring harm to your person. Those are the things that defile you. 
There's a whole series of sins in which they bring curses on you. And those curses are what damages your soul yes. and hurts you from that standpoint. Now, is there a commandment about eating clean and unclean? Yes, there definitely is. But that's not spiritual defilement. Right. Okay. That phrase, thus he declared all foods clean, there in Mark, mm -hmm. it's in parentheses in a lot of Bibles, sometimes in brackets. You look at your Bible and see what the editors did there. Because that piece of text was not in the original manuscripts. That's what I There's a, many manuscripts where that's not in there. That was inserted by some Christian scholars later on when the Bible was being formed because they thought that was the interpretation and they wanted to make their point that they thought that's what Yeshua was teaching there. So they, they wrote that statement. But we know it was added. Now, I would suggest that I sit down with those um, brethren that did that, and I would say, no, there's a different understanding for what Yeshua was talking about. He wasn't talking about kosher and clean and unclean foods. He was talking about spiritual defilement. Mm -hmm. And he was separating out the eating of foods, the things you put in your mouth. That has nothing to do with it. So that's, that answers that. Let me go one step further. These are the same people who make that mistake. The same people that go to Acts chapter 10 when you see the vision of Peter. Yes. And he, he saw a whole bunch of unclean animals coming mm -hmm. down on a, on a sheet. And the Lord told him, kill and eat. You know, and mm -hmm. Peter responded to him and he said, I've never once eaten or, yes. or any unclean thing. Well, at the end of Acts chapter 10, that was not in a new instruction on what is kosher and what you get to eat. Right. That was a vision given to Paul to change his thinking about don't call Gentiles unclean. And so he goes to the house of Cornelius and he sees them receive the Holy Spirit. And he even gives the commentary on the end of this thing mm -hmm. in which he said that God gave me a vision so I would understand not to call Gentiles unclean. Yes has nothing to do with kosher. He just simply used something that Peter, in this case, understood and uh, used it as an object lesson, you know, for him. And Yeshua's doing the same thing. Yes. You know, by the way, eating is a daily activity. Indeed. And if you want to teach some spiritual lessons, I can just tell you as a teacher, anytime you can take a spiritual concept and have it anything to do with eating and food, People pay attention and they learn the spiritual sure. lesson, you know, sure. mm -hmm. you know, I mean, think about this for a moment. I mean, you know, when we want to talk about the goodness of our country here, our culture, all you have to do is say hot dog, uh, apple pie. <laughs> yes. Okay. Americana, you know, it's part of the teaching. It's part of the instruction mm -hmm. to it. And so forth. And God used that frequently. And you can, the other teachers can use that very frequently. It's, it's an effective way to teach. Yes. And I'm glad you put that part in about Acts 10 because that always comes up. That comes up. They just don't always. read the end of the chapter. They can get the interpretation of the vision from Peter. He, yes. he tells you what it is. He tells you what he got out of it. Exactly. And instead, they cut short because it fits this business of that. Uh, we get a lot of Christians who think, well, there's no more clean and unclean. You know, when I got saved, you know, God gave me a cast iron stomach <laughs> and alimentary tract, you know, so forth. I wish I had a cast worm, cast iron stomach sometimes. Uh, no, he didn't change our physiology. He didn't change the way our body is processed, different things we ingest. Mm -hmm. And if you want to eat pig, it doesn't keep you from 
going to heaven. It might help you to get to heaven faster. <laughs> that's true, actually. We could spend, that's a whole nother program. That's a whole nother stuff. <laughs> well, here is a great question from Alice. I love this question. Okay. Is the Feast of Tabernacles in the kingdom the same as the marriage supper of the Lamb? Please help her to understand. Okay. There's a lot of teachers who have tried to link that together. Mm -hmm. There's a part of me that says, yeah, it kind of fits certain themes. And so because that's a season of joy, that's a great feast, and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful time of, of in-gathering and unification. And it kind of lends itself to, to a, a marriage supper, a marriage reception, mm -hmm. so to speak. So I'm, I'm not opposed to thematically to it, mm -hmm. but let me give what my real specific position is. The Feast of Tabernacles is a very specific commanded feast, just like the other feasts. Right. It will be the fulfillment of those commandments of those feasts. And Tabernacles has some very specific things that's associated with it, that, that, it, that Tabernacles becomes, that's the, the attention point, that, that's what it's about. Mm -hmm. Now, the part that is in parallel, the part that fits into the marriage ceremony is the joy. Yes. I, I would imagine that the first thing that we're going to do when we get in the kingdom is we're going to have a good time. And the first feast we're to observe is the Feast of Tabernacles, which will be the season of joy. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, like a marriage reception. It's like a marriage party, so to speak. The whole family has made it, you know, and so right. forth, all, all the joy that can be associated with so that's about as far as I'm willing to go with that. I'm not going to say it's the fulfillment of it because Tabernacles is a very specific commandment, whereas the marriage supper is a future prophetic event. I see. Okay. So further study and research on that one and well, that's, the scripture? Well, to tell you the truth, wait till we get here and then we'll, we'll see it together. Then we can. And then we'll all know yes. exactly what it is. And I think you've said before, once we get to the kingdom, Yeshua is going to correct us on a lot of things and teach us a whole lot more. Well, he's going to wreck our theology, <laughs> yeah. and, and he'll be the Torah teacher then. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us, and we really appreciate your viewership and your support of Lion and Lamb Ministries. If you would like your questions answered on this program, please send them to qa at lionlamb.co. And we will be happy to answer them. We'll try to answer them on air, but we'll try to answer them by email as well. Thank you again. And Monty, will you close us in prayer? Yes. Father, thank you again for another opportunity in this program to answer a few questions of the brethren. And I ask, Lord, that the answers that are given here by your Holy Spirit would encourage and build up the most holy faith in our brethren and encourage them and strengthen them to walk uprightly before you. Thank you for our redemption. Thank you for the great plan, Lord, that you have for our future to be in the kingdom, to be part of your wedding reception, and to enjoy dwelling with you in the kingdom. We look forward to that, Lord, and so we offer all of this up in the name of Yeshua, coming King and Messiah. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.